Hi, I'm Amber and welcome to the Lone Star Keto Podcast. Today we have a very special guest with us, Dr. John Puthili, and he is a diabetes expert and he is a retired medical doctor and he's also an author of some amazing books. So welcome, Dr. John. Thank you, Amber, for having me. Absolutely. Okay, so we're going to be talking about um, diabetes and can it be cured? So I would like to hear some of that background on that. Well, let's ask, first talk about what is diabetes. Diabetes is diagnosed based on just one test, one finding that is elevated blood glucose level. Okay. Now there are two types of diabetes, type one and type two. What is the difference? The difference is the presence or absence, let's say absence or presence of insulin. So the first question is, what does insulin do? And if it is not there, it is type one, what is, why is it different from type two where insulin is present? Now, if, 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 you, if, if you live in an apartment or a house, how do you know there is somebody coming to visit you? When that person rings the doorbell, you know there is somebody there but still you have the option of opening the door or not. That's entirely up to you, but at least you know. Now, every cell in the body, by the way, we have 30 plus trillion cells in the body. Every cell in the body can use glucose to produce energy, but there is no doorbell for the glucose molecule to ring to let the cell know I'm outside. That is the job of insulin. It is insulin that rings the doorbell to let the cell know that glucose is outside. Then the gene in charge, every cell activity is controlled by a gene inside the nucleus. The gene will activate a wagon to go to the door, open the door, load up glucose molecules and bring it in so that the cell can use for energy. So if you don't have insulin, that is what happens in type one diabetics mostly in children, the the pancreas does not produce insulin, glucose is outside all around the cell, but the cell does not know, the cell cannot use it. So when white cells in vital organs fail to produce energy, they are literally starving, even though there is plenty of food outside. These children used to die at age 10 or by age 10. Unless 100 years ago, exactly 100 years ago, insulin was discovered, that was administered to the children and the children's, their life, quality of life improved, their lifespan became normal. Okay, now, Dr. Dr. Elliot Jocelyn in Boston, he treated the maximum number of type one diabetics. He encountered some of his relatives older people having high blood sugar. So he thought it is the same disease happening at a later age in adults. He gave them insulin and sure enough, their blood glucose level went down. And he said, this is it. Insulin will take care of everything. Then what happened was a few years later, a test was designed to measure the level of insulin in the blood. And to the surprise of endocrinologists, they found in adults, at that time it was called adult onset diabetes. 
they found there are plenty of insulin in their blood. At the time of diagnosis, some of them have higher than normal levels of insulin. And they have high blood sugar also. So how can that happen? In children, the blood sugar is high because they don't have insulin. Whereas in adults, there is insulin and glucose at the same time. They could not figure out what is going on. Now, around the same time, penicillin was discovered about 1928. And 15, 20 years, you know, they thought penicillin will cure all infections. And they were giving penicillin. And then they found out in some people, the bacteria has become resistant to penicillin. When that report was published, the endocrinologist thought, specifically one Dr. William Falta in Vienna, he thought, perhaps this is what is happening in adults with type two diabetes. They, the body is becoming resistant to insulin. Okay, he proposed it as a hypothesis. But boy, endocrinologists loved it because they didn't have any other explanation. So they accepted it. Ordinarily, any hypothesis in any branch of science, before you accept it as fact, it has to go through a three-step validation process. The first step is, is it logical? Does it make sense? No, why should, why should the body suddenly become resistant to a hormone that is normal and natural in the body. Insulin is a natural hormone. There are many other hormones in the body. So why should, what is the reason? Nobody comes up with a reason. And second, why did the, these cells pick on insulin? Why not any other hormone? Have you heard of resistance to thyroid hormone or progesterone or estrogen? No. Why insulin? And even then, even more uh, interesting is there are 200 different types of cell in the body, but only three become resistant to insulin. The liver, muscle, and fat cells. It is as if one day they formed a union and decided from tomorrow, we are not going to respond to insulin. Why? Who cares? It doesn't matter. We decided it. Imagine a young lady who is pregnant, no family history of diabetes, no previous history of diabetes. At eight weeks of gestation, she's told she's gestationally diabetic. Why? These three cells became resistant to insulin. Why? Who knows? So there is no logic here. The second thing is, as I said, there are three validation criteria. First is logic. The second is the mechanism. What is the mechanism that makes resistance possible? Is it maybe the doorbell is defective? Or is the ringtone is not going to the nucleus? Or the gene in charge is not working? Or the wagon that has to bring in the glucose is not working? Or is it the same defect in all three sites at the same time? happening all around the world, there's no logic, there is no mechanism. Even at one, one site, the, doc, the endocrinologist have not identified a mechanism. Hmm. The third is measurement. 
Have you ever heard of a test to measure the degree of insulin resistance? There's no test. So whether you are newly diagnosed, whether you had complications, whether you have had type 2 diabetes for 20 years, nobody knows what is the degree of insulin resistance in your body because there is no test for it. So how can you verify? And you just said, you take once you are insulin resistant, you are resistant for the rest of your life. How is that possible if you don't have a test for it? Good so point. <laughs> this, this is where I started asking questions. Yeah, that that is, I, I love your analogy, the, the whole uh, door doorbell analogy. I think that makes it very simplified and easy for people to understand what's going on. So Thank yeah, you. okay, I'm on board so far. <laughs> okay, what what will be what would you want to know now? How does insulin resistance play a part in diabetes? Like, what can you do to fix the issue? Like, you know, you're resistant. Now what? Well, what I'm suggesting is there is no such thing as insulin resistance. That's okay. a made up story. Okay. Once you remove that, then the real question is, then what causes the blood sugar to go up? In type one diabetics, we know it is lack of insulin. In type two diabetics, there is plenty of insulin, yet the blood sugar is high. So if we can find for, to prevent any disease or illness, you need to know the root cause or how it develops. Without that, you cannot control it, let alone prevent it. But what we want to know is to prevent it if you, just like what you did from pre-diabetic not to progress into diabetic. So the question is, why is glucose staying in the blood? Why are the cells not using glucose? Uh -huh. let, let me give you a clue. When you were pre-diabetic, you were told your body or cells are becoming resistant to insulin and therefore the cells cannot use glucose. At that time, did you have any trouble producing energy, muscle energy, walking, running, playing? Was there any problem? I mean, I was a lot more lazy, I guess. But that's true. But, but you could yeah. do what you wanted to do. Yes. In other words, your muscles were producing energy. Mm -hmm. So if it was prevented from using glucose to produce energy, what was the fuel it was using to produce energy? Think about this, during Ramadan, the month, Muslims fast. They don't eat all day long, but that does not stop them from working. Some of the best athletes, they, they, they play at high energy expenditure level without eating all day. Where does that energy come from? Our muscles are like a hybrid engine of a car. A hybrid engine can produce power from gasoline or electricity, right? So if the engine is running on gasoline, can you say the engine is resisting electricity or vice versa? Not really. When it is used, <laughs> producing energy from gasoline, it does not need electricity. Or if it is producing energy from electricity, it does not need gasoline at that time. Similarly, 
muscles can produce energy either from glucose or from fatty acid. Mm -hmm. If you have not eaten all day, you can still function mm -hmm. because the muscles are producing energy from fatty acid. So the more fatty acid you have, the less um, uh, need for glucose. No, th think about the Inuits in Alaska. In the olden days, they used to go whale hunting for six months at a time. What did they use for food? Blubber. What is blubber? Protein and fat. No carbohydrate, right? So very little glucose, yet they were they're working very hard. How can the muscles function? Because the muscles were using fatty acid to produce energy. So there's plenty of fatty acid in the body, in the, around the muscle. Muscles don't pay attention to what insulin is saying. Insulin is saying there is glucose. So muscle is saying, so what? I have plenty of energy <laughs> or fewer inside. And the muscle refuse at, to get them in. And can you call that resistance to insulin? Suppose you had just a, a good meal. And by the way, what is your favorite food? Tell me. Filet. Okay. I bring that to you. You just finish eating and I bring you another plate and you refuse. Are you resisting feeding? <laughs> no. No. You just don't need it at this time. So that is the situation. You have so much fatty acid around the, in the blood, around the cell. The cells are using fatty acid, leaving glucose, and the glucose level goes up. So the natural question is, why is the fatty acid level high? Right? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Now, I'm going to ask you another question. What did you eat for supper last night? Oh, last night? I had a pizza. It's uh, basically a hamburger meat made into a crust with some uh, cheese and pepperoni. And it was covered with what? Uh, pretty much. Was there any that. any carbohydrate or uh, bread or any? Uh, no, no. No. I'm trying to think. Did I put it? I I did put a few onions, so you could count that. Okay. Now, for most people they will have a meal which contains some carbohydrate, some protein, like a meat. What time did you eat? About six o'clock. Six o'clock. In four hours, the food has been completely digested. And any carbohydrate in the meal will be absorbed as glucose. Any meat will be converted, uh, digested into fat and fatty acids and cholesterol. And then any protein will be digested into amino acids and absorbed. So about 10 hours at 10, hour, 10 p.m., if you look, take your blood, you will have glucose, amino acid, fatty acid, cholesterol. The elevation of glucose will stimulate your pancreas to release insulin. And insulin goes with all these nutrients to every cell in the body. And as I mentioned earlier, insulin knocks on the door or rings the doorbell to let the cell know nutrients are outside. The cell picks up what it needs. Each cell picks up. The leftover will come back to the liver. The liver has to store any excess 
for long-term storage. The long-term storage is fat, okay? So what we cannot use within the, what the cells cannot pick up within the first four hours, the next four hours, the liver is converting them into fat. For cholesterol, there is no storage area. It will be put right back into the blood. For ex excess glucose, excess amino acid, excess fatty acid, the glucose and amino acid will be converted into fatty acid and fatty acid will be converted into fat. Fat is triglyceride, three molecules of fatty acid with one molecule of glycerol. So the liver will send that out into the blood. The blood will take it to the fat storage area, which is the fat cell. And the triglyceride is too large a molecule to get into the fat cell. So outside the fat cell, there is an enzyme that chops the glycerol off. There are three fatty acids. They can now enter the fat cell. Inside the fat cell, the cell will produce a new glycerol and reconstitute the triglyceride and store it. Imagine, if you will, that the fat cell is completely full. What will happen to the fatty acid? It will stay where? It will stay in the blood, right? So the more food you eat, the more fatty acid coming out from the liver, but the fat storage capacity is filled up. The fatty acids are going up in the blood the muscle will switch to fatty acid burning. Then muscles don't use as much glucose. So start slowly, the glucose level will start going up and up. First you are normal blood, fasting blood glucose, then you are a pre-diabetic, then you are a diabetic. Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah, it does. Yes, very much. So the, the key here is, what is your fat storage capacity? Right. If you have a hundred pound storage capacity, that is what you are inheriting. You don't inherit a diabetic gene. There is no type two diabetic gene. If there is a family history, what you are inheriting is the fat storage capacity. This is Thanks. why a young woman who is pregnant, if she gains 20, 25 pounds, she's a pre-diabetic, but another person may gain 30 pounds, 35 pounds, not a pre-diabetic or mm. a gestational diabetes because this young woman has a fixed fat storage capacity which is lower than the other one. This is why some obese people, now 85% of type two diabetics are obese, right? Or overweight, right? Now, if you take 100 obese people or overweight people, how many of them will be diabetic? If obesity is the reason for diabetes, type 2 diabetes, then what percentage of 100 obese people be diabetic? I've known plenty of obese who are not diabetic. Right. It is less than 50%. Wow, I didn't know that. Right. 40, 40, around 40, 45% or even less. Why? If obesity is the reason, they should all be diabetic. Almost 90% should be diabetic, but they are not. That means it is the fat storage capacity. You may be a, just looking at a person just because they look big, that doesn't mean they are unhealthy. Mm. Okay? What is in the blood is the key. You may look very lean, but you may be diabetic. Mm. 
compared to a, yep. a bigger person who looks big. That's because true. <laughs> you inherited a very small fat storage capacity. Let me tell you this. Mm. In the United States, 85% of type 2 diabetics are obese. Whereas in India, 60% of type 2 diabetics are not obese. Wow. Huh. I did not know that. Yeah, because for generations, there were lean people in India. They have very mm -hmm. little fat storage capacity. So if you fill that up, now the age of a type 2 diabetic is going down. Why? Because children are filling up their fat storage capacity at a younger and younger age. Mm. So it's the same mechanism that is applicable whether you are a child, whether you are pregnant, whether you are lean, whether you are obese, it doesn't matter. You don't need all these fancy theories about insulin resistance. You don't mm -hmm. need insulin resistance. So now you ask me the question, if there is insulin resistance, what can we do about it? Yeah. Okay. So what can we do? <laughs> First of all, forget about insulin resistance. There is no such thing. Once you take that out, then the path becomes clear. What you want to do is to control the blood glucose level from going up in your blood, right? Right? Mm -hmm. You want to keep your blood sugar level down. Uh-huh. Where does that sugar come from? Carbs. From what you eat, right? Uh -huh. So if you don't put it in your mouth, how can it go into your blood? True. Right? Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you can take it and then take a medicine to drive it out of your blood. If you take insulin, your blood glucose level goes down. Where does it go? Into the cells. It does not go out of the body. Oh. So you're just shifting away from it away from the blood and you feel good. Oh, your A1C level is below seven. You may have a heart attack, mm. but you can have it with A1C below seven. You may, your kidney mm. may be damaged. But you can have it with your A1C below seven. Aren't you happy? <laughs> See, that is the mentality. The, the treatment right now is to control the blood glucose, not mm. to see whether it helps the people. On the other hand, if you don't put that food in your mouth, you don't need the medication. Okay? So what food is absorbed into the body as glucose? primarily, as you mentioned earlier, complex carbohydrate. Mm -hmm. In the modern day diet, most of the complex carbohydrate enters the body as what? From grains or grain flour products. Mm -hmm. You ask most people, when is the last time they had a meal or a snack without a grain flour product? It will be very hard. <laughs> <laughs> hundred years ago, the percentage of energy that a person consumed during a daily food intake for from food energy uh, that came from complex carbohydrate was less than 35%. Less than 35% of food energy came from complex carbohydrate 100 years ago. Now in developed countries, it is 50%. In developing countries, it is 75%. Oh. Why? because almost every government is subsidizing grain farming. The cheapest food available, the prepackaged foods available, the most convenient foods available, the snacks 
are all made with grain flour. Yep. So this is what is driving the obesity epidemic, the type two diabetic epi epidemic, and now we are into the cancer epidemic. Mm -hmm. It is all connected to the same deal. Okay, so what's the solution? The solution is very simple, in, in my opinion. For example, in my grains were never meant for humans. Otherwise, we would have had beaks to pick them up. And the ability to digest the chaff, we don't. So... But our food pyramid, though, I mean, the base is grains. I mean, I'm but sorry? we're told that our food pyramid, you know, has grains right. at the bottom. Yes. We're supposed to eat lots and lots and lots of it because it's good for you. That, that is because it is whole grain is good for you, right? Mm -hmm. If you take 100 grams of whole grain, you know how much carbohydrate it has? Mm -mm. 77 grams. If you take 100 grams of refined grain, you know how much carbohydrate it has? 80 grams. So the difference is three grams between whole grain and refined grain. Wow. So these three grams are the bran or the covering. You know, what is, they say it contains nutrients and fiber, right? But there is no identification what nutrient is so special in that he can get it only from whole grain or what fiber. Why can't you get it from the covering of a nut or a seed or lentil? If you don't identify it, then you don't have to say, well, it may be, you can get the same from someplace else. Mm -hmm. That is the misinformation or missing information that I'm presenting in the, in the coming up, the book that is coming out. There are things that you need to know so that you can make a judgment for yourself, you have to be in charge of your own health, just like what you did. Mm -hmm. And I applaud you for doing what you did because Thank now you. you are in charge of your health. That's what every person should do. Agree, yes. <laughs> so important. And I think we delegate that to you know doctors and the government, Ooh, the government, you know, because they have our health at, at, at heart, you know, <laughs> and making sure we do the right thing. And what about these alphabet agencies like the ADA? And for an example, and I've used this multiple times, but it, it is so heartbreaking to me. I have a cousin who swears he followed the ADA guidelines. He is now missing toes, half of one foot. He had to have a bypass surgery. He's on dialysis. But he followed the ADA guidelines because he is a type two diabetic, right? And what do you, what do you think about that? I mean, their recommendations, I mean, well, they've just now kind of started talking about low carb a little, but most of the recommendations are crazy. I've been asking them the same question for 25 years. I had a friend who used to play bridge with, with, in a group with me and when I met him, he was a PhD in organic chemistry. He had been a diabetic for 20 years, but he kept his A1C below seven for 20 years because he was allowed to adjust his insulin dosage on his own because of his knowledge. That did not stop him from losing three toes. Oh. 
that did not stop him from developing two different types of cancer. Hmm. And unfortunately, he passed away a year and a half ago. So I, I feel very sad for people like your cousin. Mm -hmm. It is not, in my opinion, necessary. I they agree. are suffering, but they believe in what they are told. Mm -hmm. They are mm -hmm. doing what they are told to do. It is sad in one way. So that is where people like you come in that to educate the people, there is another way. When you are losing the toe in spite of doing what you are told to do, you have to pull back and say, you know, what's going on here? You know, why am I doing this, but I'm still having the same complications as somebody else who is not taking the medication? So this is where we, it fund, we have to go at the fundamental level. Why is the blood glucose going up? If you don't uh, do that, if you don't put that food in your mouth, try it. At least for two months. That's all I'm asking. You all, the simplest way will be to cut down the amount of food that comes from grains and grain flour products to one half of what you're doing right now. You don't have to completely stop it. Cut it down halfway and then see what happens. See how the blood sugar goes down. See you can reduce the level of medications. Then you are in charge because it's not the medication in charge. You are in charge. Uh, that's, yeah. Uh, so how does refine, refined sugar and seed oils play into this? You're talking about refined sugar, table yes. sugar. Yes. Now, the, the table sugar has gotten such a bad reputation. You know why? Not because it has been shown to produce diabetes. There is no connection. There is no evidence com consuming table sugar will produce diabetes. If that was the case, all you have to do is stop table sugar, your diabetes should go away. Does that happen? If you stop table sugar, the moment you are diagnosed type 2 diabetes or pre-diabetes, if you stop table sugar, will the diabetes get better? It won't. Because that is not the source of blood sugar. Unless you drink, you know, gallons and gallons of soft drinks with sugar in it, which most people don't. The reason for the table sugar getting the bad rap is the name association, sugar, sugar. Blood sugar, table sugar. Mm -hmm. Blood sugar is glucose, not sucrose. Table sugar is sucrose. That the molecule is different, but the word association has given the pharmaceutical the companies to produce an artificial sweetener and the people responsible, like the dietetic association, not telling the people, this is different. There is no evidence that if you stop glucose, uh, table sugar and go to artificial sweetener, that helps your diabetes. There is no evidence for it, but they don't come out and say it. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. So like if you have a continuous glucose monitor on and like experiment eating sugar for say, and then your glucose shoots up and it stays up for a while and then it kind of goes down, then you crash. And then you do that all day long. 
isn't that detrimental. Even say you don't eat grain because you're gluten, uh, you, you have a gluten intolerance. Try doing that. How much sugar can you eat in, you know, you take a bowl of sugar. How much can you eat? Not very much, but I'll tell you what, it doesn't take much for my glucose to go. Well, have you tried that? Just pure sugar? Yeah. Or, or and honey too. Honey, honey uh, it was horrible. No, 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 no. What I'm asking is, are you? Did you do that with pure sugar or with a sugar-containing sweet? Uh, well, like a tablespoon of sugar, and uh-huh. then also in a chocolate tort. But that was so minimal that it didn't even spike my glucose at all. It was weird. Which one? the uh, chocolate tort, but it had no flour and it. it was flourless. It was just basically dark chocolate, a little right. bit of sugar and cream. That was all it is. And yes. it hardly spiked mine at all, but pure sugar and honey both went. Well, for the, the question is how, how long did it stay and when it came down and also the duration, there is a uh, total amount of glucose, the glycemic, index and the glycemic load. Mm-hmm. Glycemic index means the uh, sh- spike in blood sugar immediately after a meal. Mm-hmm. The glycemic load means how much sugar over a period of time uh, is getting into your body. Now, the best way to use a monitor will be to figure out what type of food will cause the spike and how long does it last. Because you need both information. Just because it spikes, that doesn't mean that is worse than the other one, which does not spike, but the total duration will be longer. So overall, the body has to deal with that, the total amount that you put in. Uh So just because you have, no, most people don't eat a tablespoonful of sugar. They may eat, for yeah. most coffee or tea, you may eat a teaspoon or two, that's it. That will not be as bad as having a tablespoon of mashed potato. Hmm. That mashed potato will be absorbed. It will, you will not feel it sweet, mm-hmm. but it is pure glucose compared to the sucrose, which is half glucose and half fructose. Hmm. Interesting. Yes. I have more experimentation to do. I get another glucose. I have another CGM to try experimenting with. So yeah, try try the the same. That is the best way to use a monitor to identify which food group, which meal, for example, will spike your blood glucose level and for how long. Mm-hmm. So in in my on my website, I got Dr. John's food glucose test. So what I want people to do who have the facility to have a monitor or blood test will be check your blood sugar and eat the food. Two hours from the beginning of the meal, check your blood sugar again, check it again half an hour later, and again half an hour later if you want to know how long it will last. Now, another day, exactly the same time, repeated with a different food. And you will know which food will cause the elevation and how long it will last. That is the best way to use a monitor. 
Knowing your blood sugar every morning, how does it help you? There how does no, it? There is no evidence to suggest those who monitor will have less diabetic complications compared to those who don't. Hmm. So, so the morning glucose uh, level you're saying is not necessarily an indicator one way or another? It is an indicator. That is the best way you can, because that is consistent. You have been fasting for 10 hours. Okay. And then what is the baseline? That's the best way to uh, monitor whether what you are doing in the long term is working or not. Okay. So that you want to keep as close to 100 or below as possible. Okay. okay. So that's the best. But knowing that every day, unless you do something about it, because most people, they want to know but they are not willing to take the, the, the uh, effort to modify it. True. So what's the point? The yeah. companies will tell you, as the advertisement says, you now you know. So, so what? Yes, you know. But you have to do something about it. Otherwise, what's the point? There's no other chronic illness where you are asked to measure or keep track of something multiple times a day. You don't check your cholesterol every day. You don't check your blood sugar, blood pressure three, four times a day. You don't check your breathing rate, your heart rate, nothing. Why blood sugar? Uh, well, I think for a lot of people who are diabetic, they have to know how much insulin to give themselves. And I hear this a lot. I hear like, somebody will say, oh, well, I'm going to eat that piece of cake or whatever it is. And I'll just up my insulin. Right. That, that is makes the, me crazy. That, that is the drawback of this monitoring because they are told they are in control and what they're controlling is the blood glucose level. If we have an infection, if I give you aspirin and say, you can control your fever, just take this. Yes, you can control your fever. Are you controlling the infection? You're controlling a symptom. Right. A symptom has been made into a disease. The symptom is not the disease, but what you're controlling is the symptom. Mm -hmm. So you need to get to the root. Exactly. What caused the blood glucose to go up? Don't control the symptom. Then you are missing the point. You're missing the problem, the solution. That is what the companies that market these medications or the gadgets want you to believe. Just controlling the symptom, you are in charge. Yeah, that's what I think is so incredibly frustrating to me is just throwing pills and medications. And I'm not saying there isn't some good use for them because, you know, there's a lot of things where you, you have no choice. Okay. But just, just using it to control your symptoms, like you say, but you never are actually uh, taking care of the actual problem, which can manifest in other ways anyway. So you're going to be treating all these different symptoms instead of just getting right to the root of it and taking care of that. And then you don't have all this up here. The only way, you know, I agree with you hundred percent. The only way to change that is people asking questions. 
we have to start asking for evidence. Going back to the insulin resistance, what is the evidence there is such thing as insulin resistance? What is the validation? Why don't we have a test? How do you know it is still there even if your blood sugar is normal? Yeah, but, but you know, you're not really allowed to question because if you are, then you risk your reputation. You might get reported to the board. You might, you know, your peers look at you like you're a quack. It's like, it's so hard right now to question science, to question, you know, what you've always been told as far as health and, you know, medical uh, situations. And I find that so incredibly frustrating because it's like, why can't you question? Isn't science the whole point is to question? Well, it's never settled. You, you are feeling my frustration. I have been feeling for 25 <laughs> years. I, I, have, I agree with you 100% because I have gone through that. I'm still going through that. I can ask the questions, but it is so embedded in, in the... Once you get into the book, uh, medical textbooks, it is very difficult. If you go to the website of NIH, the, the kidney and diabetic NIDDK, the thing they say is type two diabetes starts when three cells not respond to insulin. It is there, it, that's the official policy and it is being uh, you know, formal, you know, uh, supported by or the endocrinologist, and we are taught in medical school, and it is in the medical textbooks. So nobody can question it. But on the other hand, history of medicine, there are other factors that over, when enough people question, they change, they have to change. So without asking questions, how can we change? Yeah, exactly. So that is where I said, people like you who educate the ordinary people, they have just like your cousin who is losing the toes or kidneys or whatever, asking the question, doctor, I've been following your advice. I've been taking this medication all these years. Explain to me, why am I still having the complication? And we have to put the doctor on notice. We are not, uh, you know, being angry with him. We just want to know. Mm -hmm. You know what? Most of the time, even the doctors don't know. Yeah. And I think that's hard for people to understand, especially the older generation, because doctors were put up on a pedestal. You don't question them. They're, they're right up there next to God, you know, and you don't question it. And I don't, maybe I'm just a stubborn person or just an extremely stubborn child, but from the get go, I've had a mistrust because there was something that didn't feel right to me. And so I've always questioned, I've always, you know, and maybe to my detriment, I don't know, but you know, I, I have no fear in, in asking questions. If I don't like, you know, what I'm hearing, if I don't feel like it's right, I get up and walk out. I just walk out. It's like, I'm not, no. And you know, I, I, I feel bad for people who just accept for the sake of accepting because they're, they, they don't want to question. They don't well, want to believe, you know. Well, they, they are afraid naturally so because that is what they have been brought up. Mm -hmm. Now, what, so that is where we have to use a little bit of 
um, careful or tact or whatever you want to call it. Just ask one simple question, you know, either where did that sugar go after you took my, I took my insulin, the blood sugar went down, where did it go? Or why am I have kept the A1C below seven all this time, yet I lost my toe. How can you explain that? Very simple, you know, the way you ask, mm -hmm. the doctor will be put on the spot but he has to say something because he cannot be angry when somebody says, doctor, just explain to me, that's all. I'm not mm -hmm. questioning you, I'm asking a question. Mm -hmm. So the, the way that is where you, you come in to teach the patients how to ask so that after 10 people ask the same question, the doctor will begin to wonder, I need to do something here because people are more and more people are asking me the same question. I don't know myself, but all I'm told is when I was in the medical school, if you inject somebody with insulin, the glucose level goes down because the glucose is metabolized. Okay, metabolized means it is used up. Mm -hmm. So the question is, nobody will ask the next question. What is it used for? What does the self can use? What does the body use glucose for? It can do only two things. One is produce energy. Second is store it as fat. So how is that going to help? Because if you take insulin, you don't go out, you don't get the urge to spend energy, right? You don't go out and run and walk or whatever. You take insulin, blood glucose went down, it is stored as fat. Anybody who starts insulin, they will notice their weight is going up. Mm. So the, unless we ask, the doctors have no reason to answer. So True. And you, you know, I can tell it, like I have a, a dentist for instance, and I absolutely adore him because like I said, I'm one of these people, I will ask questions because I want to know it's my body. And so I, I had, because I, of my past eating disorders and other stuff, I had a lot of damage to my back teeth anyway. So I was finally getting this all take, taken care of. And it was a year and a half and God, there was so much work to do anyway, each thing I would really, you know, question, okay, now what are we doing? And he would smile and he was like, I'm so glad you asked. He was so excited. He would get out a piece of paper and he would make little drawings for me. And he would show me what's going on and why he suggests doing it this way. And, and, you know, some of the science behind it and all this kind of stuff. And I love that. And he appreciated that I took the initiative to ask those questions. And I wasn't demanding. I wasn't, you know, accusing. I, I was, I wanted to know, you know, because it was going to happen to my body. <laughs> you know? that, that is exactly how we have to teach our audience that they have the right to know. They don't have to be questioning the knowledge of the doctor, but you are asking a question for you to understand. And the doctor who knows what's going on will have no problem. He'll be happy. Mm -hmm. He's a person who doesn't know who gets upset. Because what is so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's when you're kind of like, I had a really good doctor. I, I will say I didn't agree with some of the stuff he, he had to say because I didn't feel like he had that knowledge necessarily, but he was a great doctor. He, he listened. He was awesome. And even when I told him when I had started keto, he was like, 
okay, but you're doing fabulous. Your blood work looks great. You look amazing. You look healthy. Everything is great. So keep doing that, but be careful because you might not want to stone up very long, you know, like a little back thing, because, you know, I guess he had to be cautious or whatever, because that's not, you know, the typical advice, but yet he was still open. He wasn't, he didn't shut me down and say, Oh my God, you're going to die. You know, like some doctors have told some of my clients and I'm like, uh, are you kidding me? <laughs> yeah. The, the, again, with me, you don't have to agree with what I'm saying. As long as you understand where I'm coming from, I have done my job. If you understand it, then it is up to you to decide whether you agree with it. If you agree with it, then it is up to you to decide whether you want to do something about it. That's entirely up to you. All I am interested in is the information. I don't sell anything on my website. There is no supplements, there is no gadgets, there is no association, there's no fee. All I have is information. If you like it, it is yours. You do, because each person lives differently. The circumstances, what you eat, what you have access to, what you can afford, it's all different. I cannot tell you, you should eat X amount of this and that or drink X amount of water every day. How do I know? When you sit down to eat, you don't know what your body is looking for, do you? No, not until you eat. <laughs> and then how can you tell somebody else you should eat this much or that much? Now, that brings up the next thing. If you look at toddlers, two to six years of age, how they eat, you will observe three things. One, they eat only when they are hungry. Yep. <laughs> Second, if you give them 10 different foods, they will pick and choose what they enjoy, three or four. Third, when they finish eating, they could care less how much is left on the plate. They would rather Very go true. You cannot make them open their mouth for one more bite. So that's right. <laughs> think about it. We all had the same faculty to, to eat when, they, when we want to eat what we want, to eat how much we want, and we grew up. So why did we lose it? Why can't we do it again? Yeah, why can't we? That's a good question. You have conditioned, let, let me give you this example. I asked 10 overweight people to write down for three days the exact time they felt the sensation of hunger and the exact time they ate. Four out of 10 never felt hungry for three days. But that did not stop them from eating. Wow. Wow. So I asked them why they ate when they are not hungry, because it was time to eat. Wow. Yeah, well, that's true. We are conditioned. We eat exactly. at certain times. Or right. if you work, you have a lunchtime. Or if you're in school, you have your lunchtime. You, you may not have a choice. You either risk not eating and then being really starving later, or, you know, go ahead and eat when you're not hungry. So, yeah. After, over a period of time, over years of practicing that, you disconnect your natural. That's very true. Mechanisms. Very, that very is true. what is happening. Okay. What, what do you think uh, the part of processed food plays in that? Because we know that the food scientists 
develop food to be addicting with the fat, the sugar, salt combination and to where, you know, you can't eat just one. <laughs> the, my, this question I am asked very often. The, if you think about it in nature, are there any foods from nature that an adult human being can get nutrients from without chewing? No, unless, that I can you, think of. unless you think of honey, everything right. else requires chewing. Right. So that is the number one thing you have to do that eat food. If it is too soft or if it is, if it takes very less chewing, you are in trouble. The number hmm. one. Number two, all the control mechanisms are based on the concentration of nutrients as is present in nature. So if you increase the concentration of sugar or fat or some uh, flavoring, mm -hmm. then human, our control systems cannot help you. Right. That is what the food scientists or the scientists associated with prepackaged mm -hmm. foods they are trying to do Absolutely. Work that, and once you get conditioned to that, all you have to do is look at people who are used to intensive artificial sweeteners. They're so intense. Mm -hmm. Once they're used to that, even normal fruit don't taste sweet to them. They have to add. So you have distorted the mm -hmm. mechanism. So I have, agree with that a hundred percent. I live yeah. that. Yeah. You have to go back to what is available in nature. That is how we are uh, constructed or our mechanisms are built. If you follow that, you won't have any problem. Totally agree with that. I am so hypersensitive to tastes and smells now after I've cleaned my palate and I've been pretty clean for a good four and a half years now. And so for me, water taste sweet water like and, and you know other people you know my friends are like what do you mean and I'm like you can't there's something in my water it's sweet you know I can taste it I can you know taste a dish and go oh well it's got this 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 and this in it because I'm so hypersensitive to to taste now makes a difference that it is not different it is a blessing that because you, you what you you can enjoy the food you're mm -hmm. a your enjoyment is based on the taste and smell. That's the way it should be. Mm -hmm. yes. That is what the toddlers do. Yes. You are going back to your original way of eating. That's the best. Mm -hmm. If we can do that, you are in control. You will not have a problem. It doesn't matter how much food is served to you. You enjoy eating, but more importantly, you enjoy what you eat. Absolutely. I have a two and a half year old granddaughter that I keep during the day, uh, three days out of the week. And um, of course I try to feed her what I eat because that's what I make. And she loves it, but it is true when she's done, she's done. That's it. And I don't really mess with that. And right. I don't like, you know, want her to have junk and stuff to eat instead, of course. But if she's done with the meat, she's done with the meat. And yeah. so I let her do her thing. And if she's not quite ready to eat, Okay. Right. You know, so you know exactly what I'm talking about. Oh, yeah, for yeah. sure. So that yeah. is the information that we have to give to people that you have the faculty to control your intake.
provided you put in the right stuff in your mouth. So grains, you, you are not going to miss it. You, you, you are not, you don't need it. You need very little carbohydrates. And that can come from potatoes or any other gray, the tubers, or even vegetables have, even meat has some carbohydrate mm -hmm. in it. So it is there. You're not depriving your body of anything. No. No. And I think that's the biggest misconception is people are like, oh my God, you're not eating most of your, you know, uh, you're eliminating a whole food group. Uh, actually, not really. I mean, even though I technically pretty much just eat meat, I've kind of added in a few things like occasional onions and mushrooms just, just because I like them. Um, but uh, for the most part, I eat just meat and, and butter, fats, you know, healthy fats. And um, yeah, and, and it works very well for me. I don't, I don't need the carbohydrates and people are like, you're so restrictive. That's so terrible. You completely got rid of a whole food group. Not really. I've just really limited it really, really limited it, you know, and my body makes what I don't take in. So I'm good. I'm, I'm never low energy unless I've had a really rough day with the toddler. But, you know, other than that, I mean, I'm good. I don't, I don't need coffee in the morning. I don't, you know, I don't have those issues. I don't have the afternoon slumps. I don't have any of that. The, most of the people don't understand why the mid-morning dip or mid-afternoon dip happens. Nope, they don't. The, you mentioned earlier, you take a high carb, the insulin is released, the insulin brings the carbohydrate glucose level down, you feel that dip. Mm -hmm. If somebody's feeling that dip, I would suggest they try an experiment where they practically eat, don't eat, or eat very minimum carbohydrate break for breakfast. They will <clears throat> not see that mid-morning dip or low of low energy. The same with for lunch. If they do, if they cut down on the carb carb intake or the grain flour intake, they will not feel that mid-afternoon dip as they used to, because it is a rebound from insulin. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, oh, where was I? I forgot what I was going to say. Now, dang it. Um, hmm. So. Let's, let's just go over, let's say I am a type two di diabetic. I'm taking metformin and I'm also taking insulin. Okay. Cause it's pretty bad. What can I do to get off that medication? What are the steps that you would uh, tell somebody to do? Well, since you introduced the term metformin and insulin, the first thing we, along the lines we have been talking about, I would like the, the patient or the person, ask the doctor, why am I taking metformin? Yes, it is to reduce my blood glucose level. How does metformin work? Nobody knows how it works, okay? Hmm. Yeah, they That's will give scary. you some. It is supposed to increase utilization or it is supposed to suppress release of glucose from the liver. There are all kinds of, what's the evidence? No, so that become too much. Uh, how, just very simple question. How does it work, doctor? I, I'm just curious. You know, you'll say, oh, it makes the, the body metabolize glucose. You know, the doctor will go around it because he himself does not know. <laughs> Same with insulin. 
So that is one thing. The second thing is, if you want to take charge, don't give the charge of your, uh, your disease or uh, diabetes. Don't give it to a medicine. Unless you put the food in your mouth that is absorbed into the body as glucose, your blood sugar cannot go up. So wouldn't it be better not to put it in the mouth rather than put it in the mouth and take a medicine? So work on that. And don't be afraid to cut down the amount of grain-based foods. You don't have to eliminate it completely. Some people, they cannot think, no, what am I going to eat if I don't eat bread, if I don't eat pasta, if I don't eat pizza, what am I going to eat? That's a common question because mm -hmm. you're so used to that. Mm -hmm. I was too. Very slowly. Reduce by a third for two weeks. Mm -hmm. But eat food that you can chew. Take your time and concentrate on the enjoyment of eating. If I ask you, if I, I ask many people, if you take a bite of food, how much of, how much in that do you really enjoy? Especially when you're watching TV or on your phone at the same time. Yeah, you, you're very disconnected. You just like. Well, my point is this, in order to enjoy, well, let me ask you this. Suppose I blindfold you and give you something to drink. You know exactly whether it is water or wine or soda or how do you know that? By the taste. By the taste. Now, so in order to enjoy it, you need to have the taste buds. So the nutrients have to come in contact with the taste buds. So if you take a bite, only that portion that comes in contact with the taste buds, do you really enjoy. Mm. So you're saying like, if you just go one, two and swallow it, you, like my dog, <laughs> you're not really getting the whole effect. You're not even enjoying 10, 15% of what you consume. Makes sense. That's what I always tell my husband because he eats so fast. And I'm like, what was the point of me spending all that time in the kitchen? Because you probably didn't even taste it. Oh, I did. Yeah. Yeah. He, all you, I'm asking people to do is to cut down the amount of food that you don't enjoy. You cannot enjoy it. You're not going to miss it. Yes. Agree with that. Why eat something to eat it? Now, along the same lines, if you boil some rice, can you eat it by itself? I was a weird one. I could. Probably not most people. Not many people. There are very few. If you could enjoy it, then yes, you are good because that goes along with your hypersensitivity to taste because you can taste it. Most people mm -hmm. don't. And if they taste it, they don't like it. They it's like cardboard. You're just pouring whatever you pour on it. Right. The taste. Yeah, right. absolutely. So if you are enjoying what you pour on it, are you not diluting the enjoyment by adding rice to it? Good point. For my husband, he will tell you that because he does not like rice for that very reason. Right. That's, yeah. yeah, you're right. So all I'm asking people is to cut down the portion of food or food group that you don't enjoy anyway. But that is the carrier that puts you in trouble because that carries the energy that the body has to store as fat. Mm -hmm.
So if we can take charge, if you are a diabetic, if you are on medication, the first thing is to control the amount of glucose producing foods that enter your mouth and your hands are responsible for it. So if we can control, <laughs> then you don't need the medication. Uh, yes, I like that. <laughs> I like that a lot. And, and that's, I think, what I find so incredibly frustrating is when people just, you know what causes the issue, but yet you're still recommended to eat a certain amount of that very thing that's causing the issue because it's dangerous not to have it, including hospitals, you know, with, with their patients, their diabetic patients, what they recommend for them to have for meals. I'm dying. I'm just like, oh my gosh. And I know dietitians who have worked in that field and they're like, I couldn't do it anymore. It was so ethically wrong because my eyes are open and I understand how this works. It does not make sense for me to recommend this many carbs per meal. And then they get to decide if they're going to have that syrup and that, you know, pancake and the whatever else. And it's perfectly allowed <laughs> because it's within this certain amount, even though that amount is more carbs than I eat in several years in one meal, you know, it's like, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, when I'm asked something like this, I ask, I ask the person, you are expected to the average amount of air you breathe in about six liters per minute. Okay. You take 12 breaths, 500 uh, CC per breath, six liters. I tell you, you should breathe every minute, six liters, will that work? Probably not. <laughs> if you are exercising, you will need more. If you are resting, you need less. So your body controls automatically what your need is. There's a similar mechanism for thirst, for hunger. You have to play tuned to, and you introduce the subject of TV watching. Human brain cannot concentrate on two things at the same time. You can do multitasking, but you cannot concentrate. You cannot read a story and do a math at the same time, True. no. So if you are watching something while you're eating, there's no way you can enjoy it fully or control it adequately. Uh, yes, totally agree with that. Even though I do find myself doing that too, because trying to do, you know, like checking my emails while I'm eating too, because I only got so much amount of time. Yeah, I'm guilty. But uh, yeah, absolutely. I think it's, it's extremely important. And I think between the, our, our bodies being so, you know, full of foods that have jacked our natural systems and then not having that connection with our food anymore is causing so many issues. And I see it all the time. I, I did it. I experienced it. I get it. And now that I'm on the other side, I really get it. <laughs> you know, It's like your eyes are open. You're like, how do you not see that? But I didn't. I didn't. Yeah. For most people, it is difficult to understand because on the other hand, it is also inconvenient to understand. But now right. you have to do the work. The other right. way, you can take a medicine, the doctor right. tells you, or your A1C is below seven, you're fine. Yeah, you're 100% correct on that. And I've heard that a lot. I'll just up my insulin so I can have that piece of cake. How about just not have that piece of cake and you don't need that insulin? <laughs> what a concept. But no, that's not how it works, unfortunately, for most. And, you know, like I said, after coming out on the other side, it just blows my mind because I'm like, do you not understand how important health is? 
but I didn't, I didn't care. All I cared about was being skinny or looking good. I didn't really care about my health. Honestly, I really didn't. Now I get it. And I'm like, okay, it's more about my health more so than what I look like. I mean, that's nice. Don't get me wrong, but it, it's kind of changed how I think about things. And so I do think it's an evolution. And unfortunately there's so many people who are stuck on that other side and they don't, they haven't had a reason yet to get out of that. Well, I congratulate you for finding out that truth for yourself, because unless it comes from within you, yes, it's very difficult. It is. And I get it. I totally understand it. And, uh, but it, it's just sad to see because you're like, y'all, you don't get it. You don't understand. I know you really love that, whatever you're eating, but oh, do you not understand? You know, you just don't know what it's going to do to you later. You don't know how that's going to affect your life. Okay. Yeah. So what you live till 80, but if you're confined to oxygen tank and a wheelchair, cause you ache all the time and you know, you know, and you're so big that you can't fit an airplane chair, you know, those kind of things that ain't living. Mm -mm. Well, John, it has been a pleasure. I think we are out of time now. I have really enjoyed this conversation and, and you've given me a lot to think about because, uh, yeah, it's kind of making my wheels go choo, 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 and thinking because I was definitely not looking at things the same way that you presented it. So it gives me something to kind of dive into and check out. And I find that very interesting. So I appreciate that very much. And I'm looking forward to your new book. Do you want to just give a brief description of that? Like when you think it's going to be out, uh, what it's about, the title and all that? The main point I want to make is about lifestyle conditions. For example, pandemic for me is a lifestyle condition. It spreads from people to people because the way we live, the way we travel, the way we talk, we communicate, we gather together. So that is why pandemic. Type 2 diabetes is a lifestyle condition. If you look at Native Americans, that's a very good example. When they were brought to the reservation in the year 1900, they had complete medical checkup. And type 2 diabetes was not listed as a common, a very rare condition, even though they had people age 80 plus, 10 times more compared to white Americans, yet they did not have type two diabetes. Why? Because if you think about them, they moved from one food source to another. They never stayed in one place to mm -hmm. eat cultivated grains. They never ate it, okay? So you don't need it. So that is the misinformation that can produce a lifestyle, your, your lifestyle condition, and then cancer and cardiovascular disease. Among cardiovascular disease, every people, everybody is excited about high density cholesterol called good cholesterol. Why is it called a good cholesterol? Do you know why? No. Because it does not do any bad. <laughs> okay. <laughs> not because it does anything good, but it just does not do anything bad. So okay. And some people spend money and time and energy to increase their good cholesterol. For what purpose? We don't know. So this is a type of information because when you are, uh, when somebody deliberately misinforms you, that is called disinformation. Mm -hmm. They take the information and twist it 
to for their own purpose. Mm -hmm. So disinformation, misinformation is based on a misinterpretation. Mm -hmm. Missing information like the high cholesterol, uh, good cholesterol, you're missing the point. You, you're not told the whole story. So all this can sabotage your health. If you don't know that, so disinformation, misinformation, missing information, it is sabotaging your health. That is the point and how to identify that and how you can be in charge of your health. The book is being reviewed right now. Uh, the, I'm saying the book designer is working on the cover part. So it may be another two months before it comes out. Awesome. Well, y'all, I will update if this comes out before his book does, I will update and put everything below as, as we go along. And while you're here, subscribe to my channel and then go follow Dr. John. I will have all his information, so no worries. And yeah. thank you again so much. Amber, I thank you and I thank our audience for listening. All I want is for them to be in charge of their own health, their own body. Yes, they need help from doctors. They need to take medications from time to time, but ask the question, what, why am I doing this? What is expected of this medication? And if it does not happen, how do I know? Just simple questions you can ask your doctor very calmly, you know, so the doctor does not feel threatened that you are questioning his knowledge. No, you are asking a question for you to understand better so you can follow the doctor's direction better. I love that. That is a perfect ending. Take charge of your own health, y'all. That's so, and so, so, so important. And it's very empowering too. It makes you feel... Very good. Thanks again, Dr. John, and you have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you.